quiz this morning. Are you ready? Um, some of you will respond, some of you won't, but uh, we're going to take a quick poll of who's a pessimist and who's an optimist, right? Some of you are looking at your spouses already going, oh, I know what you are, right? So the reality is, is uh, you, you know who you are, right? So, so here it is, uh, the, the pessimists in our crowd this morning, any self-acknowledged pessimists? Okay, thank you for your honesty, it's good. Uh, optimists, yeah. Glass is overflowing, not just half full, but overflowing. Good. Many more of you are willing to admit that you're an optimist that, than those of you that are willing to admit you're pessimists. And, uh, so hands raised for those. I'm just afraid to answer your question, Pastor Rick. That's, yeah, some of you. L- listen, I was um, reading an amazing article this week written by Trevin Wax. It was called The Allure of Christian Pessimism, How We're Drawn into Pessimism, and Uh, To set the stage, he summarized an article that was written in 2008. Say 2008. It was written in 2008. If you remember 2008, it wasn't good years. Global recession, right? High unemployment, uh, a transition into presidency, and and there was all kinds of unknowns. And this article was written. Here's here's a summary of it. Remember, it's written in where? 2008, thank you. And it talks about 2010. So it's predicting the future. It says this, around the end of 2010 or early July, the U.S. will break into six pieces, with Alaska reverting to Russian control. California will form the nucleus of what will be called the California Republic and will be part of China or under Chinese influence. Texas will be the heart of the Texas Republic, a cluster of states that will go to Mexico or fall under Mexican influence. Washington, D.C. and New York will be a part of an Atlantic America that may join the European Union. Canada will grab a group of northern states called the Central North American Republic, and Hawaii will be a protectorate of Japan or China. (laughs) So in 2008, they're predicting in 2010 that the U.S. is going to split into six pieces. Pessimism, abounding, right? And some of you are going, oh, that had to be some fringe newspaper, right? Some weird wacko writing that article. Guess where it was? Anybody know? Front page of the Wall Street Journal. Why are we so pessimistic? Church, why is it that as we even enter these days that we kind of get our panties in a bunch, right? Why is it that as people, we tend to go all chicken little, the sky is falling, when things don't go our way? Listen, not only as a nation, but even as a people. Uh, Trevin Wax answers that question in this article He says, why do we gravitate toward the pessimistic? It just sounds smarter and more plausible than optimism. (laughs) He says, for instance, tell someone that everything will be great and they're likely to either shrug you off or offer a skeptical eye. Tell someone that they are in danger and you have their undivided attention. I'd like to suggest to you that there are greater voices that we need to listen to today. There are greater voices that speak to the hard times that we're in. One is a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He writes this, The world is what the saints and the prophets saw that it was. It is not merely getting better or merely getting worse. There is one thing that the world does. It wobbles. (laughs) 
John Piper cautions us, don't, don't assume any specific historical trajectory of good or evil is fixed and unchangeable. God evidently loves to do his surprising work in hard and unlikely times. You know that to be true? And then Leslie Newbegin, that might not be a name that's familiar to you, a culture guy, great guy of God, uh, was asked once whether he was an optimist or a pessimist, and he said, I am neither. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Yeah. And today, we hear from another greater voice, even greater than Chesterton, Piper, or Newbegin. It's the voice of Elisha. If you're just joining us, we've been in a series studying the life of Elisha since the beginning of the year. And today we see Elisha as he journeys with a woman who has, listen, every reason to despair. She has every reason to be pessimistic. But remember, the thing that we see over and over again in the life of Elisha, the whole purpose of the life of Elisha is to show the people of God, even to us this morning, that God is a God of restoration. That God is a God that puts things back together. The original readers of this story we are about to hear are in exile. They have been thrown out of their country. They are slaves in the land in which they live. And as cool as the story is on its own, uh, we need to hear that as the exiled people would hear it, that God is about restoring a people in exile. And this week, next week, and the week after that, we will hear remarkable ways about personal restoration. Not necessarily about a nation, but as individual people. So if you are here this morning, listening online, and life feels as if it's falling apart, that the sky is falling, we will not minimize that this morning. But God's word does offer hope for you this morning, as well as instruction on how to see that hope in days of despair. So 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, those of you who have been here, they should start falling open pretty soon to these places, right? 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through Seven. If you have an electronic device, that's even easier. You just put it in there and it finds it for you. That's cheating, but we'll, we'll allow you to do that today. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I want you to listen to this amazing story, which is the very word of God. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door and behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. 
And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. The oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. Hear the very word of God. Sometimes I like to try to give you a sermon in a sentence. That's helpful for me in preaching. I think sometimes it's even more helpful for you in listening. <laughs> and so here's the sermon in a sentence this morning. It doesn't mean you get to sleep through the rest. We're just going to unpack this. Are you ready? Sermon in a sentence. God's restoration is seen as we are honest about our condition and obedient to his word. God's restoration, his power, his miracle is seen as we are honest about our condition and obedient to his word. Let's talk first about being honest about our condition. There are two sides to the honesty that we see in this text that, that, that I think are there and, and obvious. Uh, that there's the being honest about our brokenness and there's our honesty about God's supply in our brokenness. Two thoughts. First, let's look at the reality of being honest about our brokenness. This new widow comes to Elisha in an honest despair. Not only has she lost her husband, right? But due to her debts, she is risking losing her children, we know them to be sons, in slavery. We need to see in this that, that while we often turn to God in despair, right? We need to more often turn to God with every need in our lives. Uh, too often, we've talked about this here at Covenant, too often as church people, we lack the vulnerability before God to admit or to vocalize our brokenness before a God who loves to restore. It, it's really quite ironic, isn't it? I know it's true in my life and I find the irony and, and I confess it. That God's people, me, trying to convince myself that they are fine when they are not. <laughs> And at their disposal is a God who loves to heal and to restore broken people to being more beautiful than they once were. We need to say we're not fine. We need to acknowledge our brokenness. Surely in times of desperation, but even in times that aren't so despairing. There's a lot in that, but we did tackle that a bit at the beginning of Advent, a little over a month ago, uh, and I'm sure you all remember that sermon. Yeah. But let it suffice to say that we need to be honest about not being fine, right? And that like this widow before Elisha, we need to cry out to God with the things in our lives that are broken. Let that sink in for a second. We need to be honest about our brokenness. But we also need to be honest about God's supply in our brokenness. Look at this conversation that this widow has with Elisha moving forward. Elisha asks her, what shall I do for you? <laughs> and, and you know how I sometimes read the scriptures. I, I kind of make a drama of it. And, and I think about this woman, right? Uh, excuse me, I'm poor, right? My husband just died. I have debts that I can't pay. And... and my sons are going to be sold into slavery. Elisha, I thought you were a prophet. Like, what to do for me? Write a check. 
I heard your dad's rich, right? He's got this big old farm uh, up in the upper land. And, and the reality is, is you've got to find money. So, uh, uh, what do you want to do for me? <laughs> Write a check. But before she could get that out, Elisha doesn't give her time to speak. He says, what can I do for you? And then he says to her what? What's in the house? What's in the house? That seems like a weird statement. So from one silly question, what can I do for you, to what's in the house? Well, of course you know what's in the house. There's nothing in the house or I wouldn't be here begging for me. And I hear this conversation, right? There's nothing in the house. And then I hear this awkward pause. You ever been in those conversations where the long, awkward pause? And so she says, there's nothing in the house. And Elisha just keeps eye contact with her. Nothing? Well, I, I've got this little jar of oil. <laughs> you, you hear the conversation? Ah, Elisha, I don't have anything. Nothing? Well, I do have this little jar of oil. Here's the point. Even in our despair, it is so important to be honest about what we do have when we feel like we don't have anything. A preacher I listened to this week put it this way, and this will preach, you ready? Sometimes we get so overwhelmed with our scarcity that we minimize our supply. Yikes. Confession, right? Sometimes we get so overwhelmed with what we don't have that we minimize what we do have. He went on and said, sometimes we overlook the very thing God wants to work a miracle in. You've had that conversation, right, with a friend in despair. Everything's coming apart, it seems, for them. It's a long list of brokenness. It's honest. It's despair. And your heart bleeds for them. It, it's hard. But what do you want to say sometimes? Sometimes what we need to say is... But what is there in the house? Let's think for just one moment, not about your scarcity, but let's think for a moment about God's supply. Like, for instance, do you have eyelids? Yeah, I got them. Those are awesome, right? God gave you eyelids. Your eyes aren't going to dry out and pop out of your head. You have eyelids. Do you have hands? Let me see them. Yeah, they're, they're hands, right? They're, those work. That's awesome. You got out of bed this morning, right? You made it safely to church today. You hear me, right? That sometimes we say, we don't got nothing. We want to be overwhelmed by our scarcity and minimize our supply, the things that God has given us. The oil that the widow has was all she had. But can I tell you something? It was something. The oil was valuable. It was used in cooking. It was used for medicines. It was used for lighting. You want to know more about oils of the Bible? I'll give you my daughter's phone number. She uh, loves to talk about the oils of the Bible. I've learned so much from her with regard to that. She'll want to sell you some afterwards. But the reality is, is that there is so much good use to the reality of these oils. This oil was something. It was just a little, but it was something. And we 
need to hear today that even in our despair, are you ready? We have something. To become a bit more broad in this text, oil is often used in the Old Testament and in the New as a sign of the Holy Spirit, as a gift in our hearts. It was used in the anointing of kings, the healing of the broken, a beautiful picture in Zechariah 4, and I'm sure you all remember that series that we went through Zechariah <laughs> Zechariah 4. I'm trying to call your memory the old sermons, right? In Zechariah 4, there's this beautiful image uh, of these two olive trees dipping oil, dripping oil into this candle so that it keeps the candle alight. And when we talked about that, as we talked about the book of Zechariah, we talked about the reality of the Holy Spirit in us that allows us to be light in darkness, right? This oil is significant. So in our despair, we need to ask ourselves, we need to be honest, what do we have in the house? The Spirit of God? A jar of oil? The gracious gifts of God? Is it possible that, is it possible that God wants to do a miracle with what we have already in the house? God's restoration can be seen when we are honest about our condition and when we are obedient, second point, when we are obedient with what we have. Elisha gives two really hard to understand instructions to the widow. Did you catch that in this story? Think about this scenario. I lost my husband. My children are going to be torn into slavery. I don't have anything except a little oil in the house. And this is what Elisha says. Go borrow some empty pots. That makes no sense. And then what he says after that makes less sense. Take the oil that you have and begin to pour it into the empty pots. If you're the widow, you probably want to go, what? Like, what in the world are you talking about? Have you ever had those moments with God? Where you're in that place and it feels as if God is telling you something that doesn't make sense and you want to go, what? What? I love the what moments in life because God's about to do something spectacular as he does even in this woman's life. What God desires is obedience. It comes from a trust that he stands ready to restore and it leads to doing crazy things simply because he says so. The Bible is full of illustrations in this way. Uh, here is yet another one. We are told in verse 5 that this lady went. We don't know the battle in her mind. We don't know if there was delay in her steps. But we are led to believe that she just turned on her heels and started asking for pots with her sons. And then she went inside and started pouring. She was obedient with what she was given. We get two things here regarding the pots, right? Two things regarding the pots. First, it's a question, what, what was the only limitation to how much oil God was going to give? Yeah, how many pots? Right? The number of pots that she asked for. So listen, if she was shy and she just asked for a small pot, that's all the oil she was going to get. But... That's not what she did, right? She and her sons went to her neighbors, and they began getting pots 
And you got lots and lots and lots of pots, right? So uh, tr trust me, I have 14 of them back there, but I won't get them a lot, right? So, so listen, right? What are you going to do? You, you got the pot, and this is how much oil you're going to get? Or you got the pots, and this is how much oil you're going to get. Listen, the, the reality of how much oil she was going to get was dependent on her obedience to getting pots. Elisha said, don't get too few. How many is not too few? I don't know. I'm going to go ask my neighbors for all the pots they got. Think about our lives. The brokenness in them. The reality of our hearts. God stands ready to give. So there's nothing short in God's account. We've just often asked for far too less. We've surrendered far too little. That often in our lives, we've given him this pot. When he said, listen, I'm going to fill all those if you give them to me. What is it in your heart? What is it in your life that you've kept back from God? And you said, listen, I'll give you my Sunday morning from 1030 to whenever Stopper shuts up. Right? When God's saying, man, I've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and everything in between, in every gap of your life covered if you'll just give it to me. You hear it? The only limitation to how much God was going to give this widow was in the number of pots. The only limitation into what God is going to give us is the pots that we offer. Second, what was the requirement of the pots? Not just that she would get too few, but she said, or Elisha said, that they must be empty. I don't know, maybe as this poor woman collected pots, people felt sorry for her and they wanted to put food in them or other resources in them. But how crazy would it have been when the widow says, no, I just need empty pots. Likewise, God desires us to come with hearts and lives that are not filled with other idols, that aren't filled with self-sustaining resources, that he would have to kind of fill around things that we think we need, but rather to come as empty vessels that are ready to hold nothing, nothing but the power and the provision of God. The Apostle Paul tells us to live our lives as jars of clay in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Some would translate that cracked pots. Why? Well, Paul tells us that God might show the surpassing power that belongs to him and not to us. Or like Augustus' top lady wrote in a song that we'll actually sing next week, Rock of Ages. In my hands, no price I bring. What? Simply to thy cross I cling. Elisha tells the woman, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. And we are to do the same. To bring our whole lives before God as a living sacrifice. And to bring it empty of other idols that God might do the miracle of filling. And then get this, 
Elisha tells the woman to pour what little she has into the empty pots. I mean, isn't it like God, right, to have you pour out more of something that you don't feel like you already have enough of? Here's my conversation with God. Maybe you can relate. God, I will give you more when you give me more. I'll give you more when I get more, right? And, And God smiles and looks at me and he goes, well, yeah, Rick, that's just not the way it works. See, the economy of God is, is that when you give more, you will always have enough. He's made points in the scriptures that says, listen, if you only give within your means, so you go get what you can get on your own, and that's what you give? What good is that? That's self-sufficiency. God says, I have an idea. Why don't you give what you don't have? That's called trust. That's called sacrifice. That's called faith. And it's called obedience. And it's exactly what this woman did. And I know our minds go to finances in this, and the finance team of the church is going, amen right now, Stoffer, you don't preach enough about giving more money, right? That, that, that you, you, you need to give that, right? And, and that's true. It's a good application. But you already got that one. Let me give you another one. How about the giving of your time? The giving of your energy? The giving of your gifts, the things that God has given you, when you feel like, man, I I just don't have enough, God says, super, give what you got, and I'll take care of the rest. Pour it out, and I'll give you more. Don't wait for me to give you more before you pour. How about through the Spirit? I mean, we could, I, we could preach a sermon here, right? The reality of the love that God has given me, and I'm going, oh, I'm not sure I have enough love to love that person. Honesty, right? The unlovely, the seemingly unlovable, and God says, perfect. I've given you love. You don't think it's enough, but if you start to give the love that you got, you're going to see the miracle of God restoring. Forgiveness. God, I know you've forgiven me for my sins. That's, that's super cool, but you like want me to forgive them? I'm not sure I have enough. He says, oh, listen, I've given you all you need. You give what you have. I will take care of the rest. Joy. Oh, COVID has robbed our joy and our contentment in him. It's brought anxiousness and anxiety. And God says, listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you don't feel like you got it, but pour out what you got and watch me do my thing. Get it? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Self-control. God has given us all of these gifts. It's what's in our house. And he says, pour it out and watch me do my thing. So listen, don't be surprised 
that when our prayer is for more, God's answer is to pour. That'll stick, won't it? Don't be surprised that when our prayer is for more, that God's answer is to pour what you already have. That's the instruction to the widow. Go get some empty pots and then pour what you have into them. It was a call for an obedience that demanded faith that God was going to provide, and we see what God did, which is the last point this morning. Don't miss the miracle of restoration. It really is the point of the story. I mean, how cool is God? The widow and her sons come into a modest house, now cluttered with empty pots, and the mom begins to pour out the oil into a large pot. Like, get this, right? Here's my oil. Here's my pot. Like, I don't know what this is going to do. And then it just keeps coming. And it keeps coming (laughs) until that pot's full. Hey, sons, bring me another pot. Okay. And she fills that pot. It's like, whoa, 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 this is good stuff, right? And all these pots are getting filled by the little pot that she had. God does a miracle. I don't know. There was this little story of some fish and loaves, and it fed 5,000. There's a reality of stories throughout the scripture that God takes what we think is too little and does miracles with it. It's the story here. I, man, I don't know what it would have been like to be in that house. Yeah, look at this. This is awesome. Right? In fact, it was so awesome that Elisha says, shut the door because everybody's going to want a piece of that. Right? Awesome. Don't miss the miracle. Don't miss the power of God. So the pots get all filled. The widow finds Elisha, says, you won't believe what happened. He goes, yeah, I think I will. But what now? He says, we'll sell them. And when she does, it pays her debt and gives her a 401k that provides for her for the rest of her life. It's a story of restoration. It is a story of hope. And the only way this family saw, listen, the only way this family saw the miracle of God was through their honesty and their obedience. But be careful. Be careful. Sometimes in our lives, sometimes from pulpits, people want to say that God rewarded their honesty and their obedience with his miracle. And I don't think that's what he did. Hear it. God did not reward their honesty and obedience with restoration. That would lead to some really dangerous theology. Bad stuff. Rather hear this. In your life, God is always restoring. He is always displaying his goodness. He's always pouring out. But we will only see it when we look through the lenses, the glasses of honesty and obedience. So is it possible that God stands ready to do a miracle in your life this morning? But because you're self-sufficient, because you're fine, that you might be missing it? 
Is it possible that, that God stands ready to do a miracle in your life, but because you've been unwilling to look at what God has already given you, that the miracle isn't seen? That because you have only given God a small portion of your heart rather than all of it, that you can't see the miracle? That because your pots are filled with your idols, leaving no room for God, that you don't see the miracle? That because you are unwilling to pour until you have more, that you are blind to it? We will only see God's miracle through the lenses, the glasses of honesty and obedience and one more caveat for you, one more word of knowledge, word of warning to you this morning. The miracle that you get is not always the miracle that you ask for. The widow, I think, was looking for resources, right? Elisha, write me a check. And he said, no, what I want you to do is go collect pots and pour oil. <laughs> She didn't get what she was asking for, but she got the miracle that God designed. You've heard our story. Some of you have been here a while and that we have prayed for years for our daughter to be able to give birth in the midst of a struggle of infertility. We prayed and we prayed and God hasn't answered that prayer, but he's given us two amazing little girls through adoption. It's not the thing that we thought, but it's the greater miracle of what God is doing. Some of you prayed hard for a certain candidate to win an election, and he didn't. We pray hard for a, a virus to end, and it hasn't. But instead of giving up, God says, hey, be like this widow. Be honest about your condition and be obedient with what you got. And just see what God has in store. Remember, the people who first read this are in exile as slaves not exactly what they had in mind. But God gives Elisha and this widow to us to show that their hope is in God. That our hope is in God. That God is about restoring, taking the broken pieces and making something beautiful. So the next time someone asks you if you're an optimist or a pessimist, say neither. But let me tell you this story about a prophet and a widow and some oil. <laughs> An amazing God that is a way maker, that is a miracle worker, that is a promise keeper, and one who is light in my darkness. Leslie Newbegin said, I'm neither a pessimist or an optimist, but Jesus rose from the dead, which is really what this story points to, isn't it? Jesus coming to our broken world and to our broken hearts and restoring us, making us whole, making us righteous. Can we be honest about our sin this morning? Can we be honest about God's spirit in us this morning? Will we collect every pot we can in our hearts for him to fill this morning, holding nothing back? And will they be empty, rid of all of our other idols? Will we be honest and obedient that we might see the fullness of the miracle of our salvation? When we are, we will see this God moving in our midst, working in our hearts. 
to not only save us, but to use us, to not only give us hope, but make us messengers of hope to a world who desperately needs to hear about a prophet and a widow and some oil and an amazing God. Let's pray together. God, we believe that you are indeed here, moving in our midst, that you are here, working in this place, and we worship you. I would pray, God, that if there's even just one who is listening now, listening later, who is sitting here in the sanctuary, God, that is in a place that's broken. God, that your spirit would attend to their soul, that you would impress upon them all that they need to hear, even from this story, to tell them that there is hope. That even in the broken places, even in the desperate places, that there is hope. And God, in that, draw them draw them to you. And where there are many who sit in this place or listen today, we know of that hope. May you inspire us continually in our own honesty and our own obedience that we might be messengers of that hope. For the sake of your kingdom, for the glory of your name, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.